Thanks for joining Impact Boom. On this episode... People have ideas and they know what's appropriate for their community, but often they don't get a say about the governance or the ideas in that community. And there's a huge gap between the ideas and the capital to actually bring them to life, or even the expertise sometimes, the yeah. sort of the, the business now to develop an idea and, and get it to the right investors. So we saw that as a huge opportunity. Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 315 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen, and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Damon Gamo. Damon Gamo is an award-winning screenwriter, director, author and activist. In 2015, his debut feature documentary, That Sugar Film, broke Australian box office records, won the Actor Award for Best Feature Documentary and sold to 25 international territories. His accompanying campaign book, That Sugar Book, was a bestseller in Australia, is published in 20 countries and translated into eight languages. Damon's most recent feature documentary, 2040, is also one of the highest grossing Australian documentaries of all time and has been released all over the globe. His companion book, 2040, A Handbook for the Regeneration, is published by Pan Macmillan. And his latest film, Regenerating Australia, will be released in early 2022. An in-demand thought leader and keynote speaker, Damon has received numerous accolades for his work, including a nomination for New South Wales Australian of the Year in 2020. And it's been an absolute pleasure to, to see a screener of Regenerating Australia just last week myself. It's a cracker of a documentary. Damon, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. So let's kick off, Damon. Tell us a little bit about your background and what it was that led to this interest and passion in storytelling and, and documentaries to create a better future? Well, I had been, um, originally when I finished school, I, I thought I wanted to be a journalist. So I spent um, about a year and a half in, in that degree and then was doing a university review kind of play. And then the reviewer actually of that of a local paper said, you know, have you thought about doing any acting or, or auditioning for NIDA? And so a bit of on a whim, I, I went and auditioned for NIDA, and, uh, which is the drama school in Sydney and, yep. and, and did get in there. And so sort of spent the next few years thinking that I was going to wanted to be an actor and uh, got out of there and did quite a few different films here and, and overseas and was fortunate enough or kind of I was spoiled really and the first film I ever did was with with Rolf Tahir and The Tracker with David Goldblum um, when I was only 23 and that really spoiled me in the sense of seeing what filmmaking could be and, and how potent storytelling could be and I really didn't get any more of an experience like that until you know I think about seven years later when I did a film called Balabo about the um, these team the journalists that were killed there, the Australian journalists that were killed there yep. uh, in the seventies, and I think around that time I just felt very, very frustrated by telling other people's stories and, yeah. and not communicating my own values and what I wanted to say. And, and apart from those two jobs, uh, acting just wasn't satisfying in the way that I'd hoped it would. So, 
I um, made a Tropfest film with my wife and it cost $80 and I just, you know, submitted it and it happened to get in and then, and then it won. Classic. It was a complete shock. And, um, yeah, and so then I was doing a film with Mad Men at the time um, and they sort of said, look, you know, do you want to make a feature? Is, it, is there anything that you'd like to do? And I just thought it was a good opportunity to um, maybe have a, have a stab at something. And I, I'd seen so much about sugar in the press at the time and, and thought that, God, the, the idea of sugar just lends itself to a really great film aesthetic in terms of the madness and the heightened colours and the Willy Wonka aesthetics. Yes. And so, um, yeah, obviously just made that and, and, and then just really got a very deep dive lesson into the into how influential stories can be to culture and, and um, just the impact campaign of that and, and and the difference it made not just to Australia and the curriculum and but also overseas to policy we did screenings in, in the UK Parliament with Jamie Oliver and, and the New Zealand Parliament and that really lit the fire I guess in, in mm. how influential story could be and so then took a lot of those learnings into 2040 and, and sort of developed that impact campaign at the same time as we were making the film, so they yeah. were running concurrently so that we could really make sure we were doing it properly. And, yeah, they just got some really wonderful metrics and uh, feedback from that. And so that's led to this, which is kind of, I guess, a localised, condensed version of 2040, just focusing on Australia and what we could do. But, again, based on a, a really deep listening and consultation process with, with lots of different Australians. So, yeah, I, I guess the last eight years I've um, I guess I would say my one of my theories of change, for, for want of a better term, or that, that buzzword that's around is... Yeah. Just the, the, the power of story, that we, we, we obviously walk around with a story in our heads of who we are and that really influences how we interact with other people and whether we think we're an imposter or whether we think we're, you know, confident or whether we're terrified by public speaking. All yeah. those things are narratives that we concoct in our head, but more and more I realise there's a collective narrative that we're playing out and a lot of people don't even realise that we're in that. Yeah. And it's a narrative that you know wasn't around five or six hundred years ago, and it's a narrative that largely tells us that we're we're separate from nature, and that we have to grow at all costs, and that and that we're inherently selfish and greedy as our primary trait. Mm. And I just don't think that's true. So, so I do think there's a role of story and art in particular to wake people up from that, but also um, throw up visions of of how things could be different. I think um, yeah. storytellers have a really important role there, and, and they've been really undervalued and underutilized um in that space in the last few decades yeah yeah such great points and it's it's a great it's a great story of of you know all of these different pieces that have, have sort of come together to see you then releasing regenerating australia and you've got some you've got some great voices on there too so like kerry o'brien sandra sully tim flannery david pocock and you know these other well-known voices mm. and within this doco damon you asked a question what would Australia look like by 2030 if we simply listened to the needs of its people? So can you tell us a little bit more about the film and basically what you've learnt in the process of making it? Yeah, so it was um, uh, May of 2020 and um, WWF had reached out to us and I just floated the idea of they wanted to, if we wanted to do a collaboration and they wanted to really explore the idea of narrative. And yeah. um, it was good timing because I'd sort of thought about doing something that was more Australian focused after 2040. And so uh, we embarked on a sort of a listening campaign, largely with bushfire affected communities at the time, because mm. only four or five months after the fires and yep. just asked people how they would rebuild and what changes would they make in their community. And, and it was just so insightful, that feedback, that we then expanded that campaign and ended up interviewing a a, year, a really large number of Australians from very diverse backgrounds, from yeah. you know, coal, coal workers to teenagers and farmers, and everyone in between, and just 
it was just a, a wonderful uh, process just to sit with these people, um, often groups, just to hear where they're at, mm. what they what frustrates them about the country and, and what they'd like to do differently and just encouraging them to, to dream and to use their imagination. And, and so many people just said, like, God, I've never done anything like this. I've never thought to do this. I'm so living in the present or trying to survive. But yep. it became really clear to me that we do outsource our imagination or we do outsource the future creation to large organisations and, and various corporates that are obviously thinking and strategising about the future and, and thinking ahead. But yeah. I thought it was important for us to also wrestle some of that control back because obviously not all of that is is, is something we're going to agree with. So um, really fascinating process and then took all that feedback and collated it and, and then sort of tried to put it into this vision. And then again, the idea of using these familiar voices because a lot of this stuff, as we know, can be quite new to people, but I yep. thought, you know, if we if we use those voices that people have grown up with in their living rooms, the familiarity, the credentials of some of those people reading these potential news stories of the future would just add a gravitas that um, mm. I think people need at this moment where there's so much conflicting information and propaganda that if we can use these trusted messengers to deliver what is new information, I think we've got a much better chance of people taking it seriously. Yeah, yeah, it's a great, great point there. And you talk about that listening exercise and, you know, just spending a lot of time really embedded within those communities. You say, you know, beginning the bushfire affected communities. And of course, I'm sure that then spread to to flood affected communities and all these other um, you know issues that we've been dealing with as, as a nation or as a globe. So where have you seen these key opportunities right now? To change the world for the better like where are some of the the low-hanging sort of fruit areas that people can can really make a big difference in well what came through really clearly in the listening campaign was that people have ideas and they know what's appropriate for their community but often they don't get a say about the governance or the ideas in that community and there's a huge gap between the ideas and the capital to actually bring them to life or even the expertise sometimes the yep. sort of the, the business now to develop an idea and, and get it to the right investors so we saw that as a huge opportunity and, and so WWF um, very generously put up a, a sort of a multi-million dollar fund, largely of, or, or entirely of grants of, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100, yeah. 250K for anyone that sees the film and, and resonates with something and then says, you know what, I've got an idea like that. I want to do an urban food project or, a mm. you know, First Nations Learning Centre, whatever it might be. And, you know, we're 51 screenings in and just the quality of those ideas that have been submitted already through their Innovate to Regenerate program is just extraordinary. And, yeah. and people thinking so creatively and so laterally and with really well-rounded values that sort of benefit their community, uh, Indigenous groups, the planet. Um, it really is encouraging and, and very hopeful to see the way that people are thinking and, and, and getting on with things. And I think mm. that comes with it the lack of legitimate action that we've had in some of these ecological areas over the last sort of 10, 20 years. So people have learned to be more resilient and to sort of um, roll up their sleeves and try and get it done themselves. So we're very excited by what we can develop in, in the years ahead with all these networks, um, obviously, you know, partnering with various impact investors, uh, depending on who wins the election to proposing yes. uh, whichever government comes in to say, look, we've got all this incredibly rich material of communities that want to empower themselves with yep. really great ideas. How about we, you know, turn some of this into policy or put some legitimate funding in there to help them develop to a, to a next level and then bring a, bring in that layer of impact investment to, to start scaling it up. So um, I guess it's just about cultivating this decentralised uh, regenerative network across the country that no one's leading, it's not owned by anyone, there's no hierarchical structure, yep. it's very much a horizontal relationship of people learning from each other, sharing their expertise and skills. And, you know, as you know, that's, that's the only way we're going to get through and win this. Yep. You cannot 
you know, expect some tech billionaire to save us. That that era's gone. Yes. We're going to have to come together and connect if we're going to pull off what, what are our largest existential threats. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I mean, you just covered a, a range of really important topics there from, you know, finance and policy and, and simply know-how too. But when it comes to getting on with the work, just like you said, there's a lot of bloody hard work that needs to get done and the communities need to come together to tackle these really complex problems. What is the key thing that you think is really holding us back? Well, I would say it's largely policy. I think people don't understand really how, I mean, we're sort of getting a sense of what a captured state we have in terms of fossil fuels, like just the, the mechanisms that are built to protect those energy monopolies don't allow things like microgrids or community batteries to easily come through. I mean, that is changing to a degree, but there is an incumbent system that's very well adept at protecting itself. And that applies to the building industry and to lots of other industries. So, Mm. you know, to actually get these meaningful regenerative changes that we require, um, it's going to take the right leadership and and take that, that, that policy shift. And also what's come through really clearly is that despite local governments and even state governments to a degree doing wonderful things, there's such a disconnect uh, then to the federal government um, that it's a real mess and that yes. people don't have the trust. And we're even seeing that with sort of overseas investors. They're, they're so reluctant to come here and do things because we don't have meaningful targets. They don't yeah. have that assuredness to actually, you know, get on with this. And then we see what's happening with other EVs where, where, where the, because of our vehicle emission standards, all these countries are sending a dirty, polluting cars to us because yeah, yeah. no one else will have it. We're missing out on all this incredible diversity of cheaper electric cars that are now prevalent through Europe and other parts of the world. Uh, and again, we've just lagged so far behind because we don't have the right structures and policy and communication uh, to allow this to happen really easily. So I would argue that's one of our biggest barriers. Um, and a lot of these protective mechanisms are are very old. They've been in place for a long time. People have benefited from them in, in, in various ways. And so they're going to be reluctant to change. Yes. But I guess the reality is we just, you know, we, we know what the outcome is if we don't change. And yeah. I don't think any of us want that. And increasingly, people are realising what that looks like. And so we're going to be forced into change because I, I really do think that, you know, this this will be one of the largest movements in human history purely because of the weather. I mean, we've seen what's happened with the floods. We're going to get more fly, fires in the decade ahead. We're going to get more intense rainfalls because that warmer air holds more moisture. Yeah. But with every disaster we get, and more and more people are going to come on side, realise the urgent action that's required, uh, and it's going to be very hard to be a denier or a lagger in the five and ten years ahead. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And look, I mean, your your body of work alone just shows the importance of narrative and storytelling. And Damon, with the founders that we work with, you know, across our programs, typically in Australia, we see that many of them are really keen to to tell those compelling narratives and to improve their own storytelling skills. So. With your expertise and what advice would you be giving those founders or those you know, social entrepreneurs or, or leaders of, of not-for-profits that are really keen to better engage their audiences and ultimately create the change that they want to see? Yeah, well, obviously, I'm, you know, say this with a caveat that it, it, I'd really like it not to be used against us and to be promoting some wonderful greenwash campaign. But, <laughs> um, but Such you, a great point. Preface it quite. Yeah, but no, I think it's, um, well, certainly I can only speak from our experience and and it came from obviously, you know, trial and error and, and discussions over the last sort of six or seven years, yeah. really around the psychology, especially in this moment where we're so bombarded with so many dystopian stories or images of the future or, yeah. you know, things we've got to contend with, whether it's wars and AI threat, all sorts of things, that people's capacity to actually process all that 
you know, it just it shuts down the parts of our brain. The limbic system gets activated when you're in fear and it shuts down the parts of the brain that, that think creatively and problem solve the prefrontal yes. cortex. So um, we're so bombarded and our algorithms are engineered that way to keep us in that outrage yep. mode yep. Um, that, you know, I think it's just so important that we remind people that so much of this is not a story about, you know, sacrifice and the depravity, which has been the controlling polarizing narrative around climate in particular for the last 20 years. It's like, you've got to give up all these things. You've got to give up your life. They want to steal this. They want to take yeah. your jobs. Um, really, the narrative is, my God, especially in this country, the opportunities we have are just Enormous. remarkable. And I, yeah. and I found that even doing 2040 when we were doing press for that, you know, through Europe and America and, and journalists would say to me, you know, what, what is happening in your country? Because, you know, from our point of view, you know, we would beg to have that much land available, that much solar and wind, that much ability to diversify mm. and use that energy to create all these new industries around EVs or wind turbines or, or whatever it might be, yeah. let alone the amount of ocean that you have that you could start restoring seagrasses and kelp forests and use those industries, not to mention the vast landscapes that you could sequester carbon into and revegetate and plant mangroves, all these things that are going to be so important in the markets of the future. Yes. We just have sitting here right now and yet we're so clinging on to what is largely the most vulnerable asset in the world right now, and we've hedged all our bets in that. I, mean, mm. I think we've seen how vulnerable we are, that we've got rid of all these things that we used to have that gave us resilience and diversification and the manufacturing. Yes. And we've just put our eggs in the education, tourism and fossil fuel basket largely, and two of those got smashed in the last few years, yeah. and, and one of them is, is on the way out. So we just have to think differently. Uh, and that's why people are pulling their hair out because, you know, we're wasting time. And as I said before, people are going to go to other countries to do this. Yeah. Um, while we waste the time and send the wrong signals, we're losing incredible opportunity. Yeah, it's a, it's a really great point. So let's, let's give our listeners some really tangible examples then. What inspiring projects or initiatives have you come across then? You know, I know you've come across literally hundreds, Damon which are really creating that positive social, environmental or, or cultural change? It is very hard to, to narrow them down because obviously I've spent a lot of time in the solution space and, and you know, almost daily you're, you're learning about different programs. And I think it's what's exciting is that people are starting to think in, in a, a much less linear way than they did even a few years ago, that people are seeing, I mean, you know, that sort of ESG term is the obvious yes. one, but yeah. that people are starting to do that you know, legitimately, and, and you look at certain companies that have been leading the way for a long time, like Patagonia and whatnot, but certainly behind the scenes and, and the screenings we've done to very large corporates, not just here, but overseas, and I would say even um, governments around the world that we've done talks to, you know, the great thing is that they're all having these conversations. This, this isn't a radical conversation like it was a few years ago. And they are aware of um, the inertia in the system and the fiduciary obligation and the, the contracts that have been done up and the, the unraveling from that old system is, is giving them all a headache. Yeah. But they are having those discussions about what does it look like? And, and I've even been you know, privy to a couple of chats where seriously, you know, the, the right brains you want, MIT kind of level brains are talking about redesigning system and what are the mm -hmm. new incentives so we're not destroying the living world and destroying our society. So the fact that those conversations are being had by really unlikely people. Yeah. Um, that are looking at the, the cascading benefits of this new system, not just to a few at the top, but actually how do we get those benefits? That, that to me is very exciting. And then there's obviously just a litany of 
of smaller startup impact ideas and, and you would know this better than me but just the amount of money going to that climate tech space or the startup space and whether it's air capture things or algae things or plastics made of yeah. fish waste whatever it might be i mean there's just an unbelievable amount of those things going on yeah, yeah. or various different levels and, and di different you know possibilities of scaling um, but I think it's so healthy that, that, that we're at this point, at least. It's not where we'd love to be and where we probably should be. But I do think that we're, we're very close to some kind of global tipping point in, in that area. Um, yeah. And as I said before, you know, it's just going to take a few more shocks. They're going to keep coming um, to just escalate the problem. And, 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 you know, it's a great reference. Often you think about what happened in World War Two, that suddenly when people saw the amount of bombing that was happening nearby and the, and the emergency suddenly came into their own town, um, you know, the policies that came out of the back of the war were kind of extraordinary in terms of that galvanisation and regulation and things that needed yes. to be done to actually move forward to a better future. So in a lot of ways, that's a template that the more disasters we get, I think it's going to really wake people up to the, 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 the large scale changes that we need, not just the tinkering around the edges. That's right. I mean, it certainly brings that, that sense of urgency and look, let's hope uh, without necessarily having to suffer all the consequences of these these disasters that they do act as a, as that strong catalyst so we do see the change that we desperately need to see but damon to, yeah. fin to finish off you're an author yourself what books or other resources would you be recommending to our listeners oh uh wow that's a big question and i there's so many I, I feel like i've read some really wonderful books lately I, i've just finished um I'm halfway through the First Nations Knowledge Series. I'm not sure if you're familiar with those. Oh, but, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the country I've just read, which is the Bill Gamage and, and um, Bruce Pascoe book, yep. and then Songlines as well to start that. I mean, they, they, they should just be essential in the curriculum. I think they're just such a great upskill of the incredible Absolutely. asset we have in this country. The, yeah. the, you know, the 60,000 years of acute observational science that we have at our disposal. Like, yep. I'm just mad that we're not using it. Um, you know, Overstory, I just finished. Some of you might have read that already, the Richard Powers story, which, again, is just such a beautiful use of narrative to embed these sort of um you know sort of ecological values through storytelling i just thought that was a, an incredible i think it won the pulitzer in, in 2019 and uh and also if people haven't read ministry of the future that one is the kim stanley robinson sort of sci-fi called cli-fi book that is sort of set in the future and mm -hmm. looks at how we turn things around and set up this ministry for the future to make these kind of decisions and uh, i think that it talks about using a carbon coin becomes the dominant um, currency that's matched to you know the fiat is how much you know carbon you can sequester you get rewarded for that so really interesting ideas yeah. for this moment um just to kick start some thoughts about what we could create as businesses or what the future might look like because it's certainly not, not going to look like it is right now and i think a lot of people are just not quite aware of the changes that are coming in the next 10 or 20 years it's going to be profound and we'll be forced into them and i think a lot of people just aren't ready for it yeah look totally agree and i think it's a it's a great way to wrap up but those were a great list of books there too. I'd certainly add Dark Emu as, as another great, great read to that list as well. So we'll, we'll stick links through to all of those books and, and the initiatives mentioned in the article. But Damon, we really, really appreciate all your hard work and your really generous insights and time today. It's been a pleasure to talk. Keep it up and we'll chat again in the future. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.